Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Liberty and the Law, the podcast series that examines the critical elements of a strong legal defense in criminal cases. Join respected attorney James Dore for this lively discussion on the rights of criminal defendants and the important role defense attorneys play in our legal system. If you uh, if you'd like to stay current on legal news, um, you know from listening to this podcast, we're we're here to assist with that. Hi everybody, this is Jim Mitchell, and uh, always pleased to have you join us for Liberty and the Law. Um, and it was just last week that um, the Illinois Supreme Court weighed in on an interesting case that we're going to discuss today, Illinois versus Reed. We'll uh, we'll get to the details of that in in just a minute, but let me first introduce uh, the contributing. Uh, partner here in these podcasts, Attorney James Dore. He's an experienced defense attorney, and he follows these court decisions carefully, uh, as you would expect, and I always look forward to his input. So, uh, Jim, good morning, and uh, kind of a happy Friday to you. Yeah, and happy holidays on top of that, Jim. Yeah, great time of year. I appreciate you taking some time, and uh, interesting that the Illinois Supreme Court um, uh, kind of handled this one as as the year was wrapping up. We're going to talk about the specifics um, and Mr. Reed's claim, um, but one of the things that gets referenced, I'd, I'd like to sort of talk about up front here, is um, the Post-Conviction Hearing Act. And I know you've mentioned that that's you know that's not an uncommon tool. Can you tell us what what that is from a legal perspective, and then we'll talk about well, how it applied in this case? Well, sure. And in in, in Illinois, I think as a result of successive uh, appellate cases filed by defendants, especially defendants in custody, as you can imagine, these people have you know. They're, they have a lot of time on their hands, um, and man being the intelligent, creative person that man is, will come up with appeal after appeal and ideas to you know, try to regain freedom. So I, it, at the heart of it, you know, we have to protect people's abilities to file post-conviction claims, but at the same time not abuse the process. So the, the, stat, the legislature came down with this statute to try to give some framework to these successive appeals and uh, to make sure that you know each appellate court is providing procedural due process, and and, and making sure that these claims are are getting a, a um, their their just hearing in court, and not just being um, you know dismissed as frivolous claims by somebody else in custody. You know, they, they it's it's a framework so that there's a procedure set up, and um, it's like I said, it's essentially to uh, to avoid abuse of the process. And um, obviously, if this case got to the Supreme Court of Illinois, there were, you know, some court proceedings prior to that. Let's go back to the beginning, because it starts with um, DeMario Reed, um, the defendant in, in the original case, actually pleading guilty to some charges. Um, you know, he agreed to a, a plea deal. Can you kind of walk us through the original case and what it was that he pled guilty to? All right. The original case involved, uh, I guess he was sitting on the front uh, uh porch of a house that was reportedly in a high crime area. This is one of those uh, uh, tools that law enforcement can use to kind of uh, do an end run around the constitutional requirements. So high crime area means, uh, uh, and we should do a podcast just on that alone because it's, 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 um, you know, it's, it's definitely a fruitful conversation for us. So, but anyway, it's a high crime area. Apparently these guys are sitting on the front porch. The officer gets out of his car to approach the porch in a, what he called was a voluntary uh, contact. It was voluntary on, on his part, but not necessarily <laughs> with the guy sitting on the porch because one uh-huh. of them got up and ran in the house 
and that's the you know um, that led to this appeal here. Uh, Mr. Reed ran into the house, and uh, some other guys were arrested there too. So, um, Sutu and Reed ran into the house. They found him in a back bedroom, um, but they found drugs and a shotgun in another room. But eventually, he ended up after the arrest pleading guilty to a charge of armed violence, and in uh, as part of that plea arrangement, the prosecutor prosecutors dismissed another three different charges. He had an unlawful possession of weapon by a felon, um, possession of controlled substance with intent to deliver, and as I think just another possession charge with a controlled substance. I think it was a very small amount of crack cocaine that he had um, on or about his person. So that's uh, essentially what the, the charge was related to. What he pled guilty to was the armed violence charge. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for that, sir, was given a sentence of what, uh, 12, 15 years, somewhere in there. I think it was 15 years that he. That he so yeah. I think there was, you know, he obviously had some prior uh, contacts with the law. Must have had a, a, a criminal record. So 15 years, I mean, that, that's pretty steep. And for somebody to agree yeah. to that, he must have been looking at a significant uh, period of time greater than that in order to enter this plea. So, um, yeah, based on that, and uh, he entered a plea of guilty, and then later on. While in custody in the prison, um, another gentleman here, Mr. Reed, ended up being locked up with him. So he he swore an affidavit saying that the crack cocaine was his and not the defendant's. Yeah, and you know, you and I, I, I know you're just itching to, to really dig into this case because there's a whole question of what did the police officer, what right did he have to just walk in the house and start investigating, and things were found in different rooms. But we're we're, we're going to have to put that aside today, and right. I want to talk about. His claim, then, the the the, court, the crux of this is the defendant said, look, I, I pled guilty, but now I want to say I'm innocent. And uh, the the state said, well, you've already said you're guilty. We can't go back and, you know, change that claim. And that really is what this is all about is, you know, can someone who has entered a plea, not been not been convicted, but entered a plea, later change right. that? And, and the, uh, state's the court trying really to say they, a lot to say about it. Right. The state's trying to say that, Essentially, the defendant waives that that claim when he pleads guilty. Mm-hmm. But you know, the court's looking at it a diff, at a different way. They have a they have a, uh, a duty to pursue justice, and the prosecutor does have that same duty, which they point out in the case. The prosecutor doesn't just have a duty to uh, achieve convictions. The the, the prosecutor has a, a paramount duty to see that justice is done as well. Um, so that's that's part of the analysis that they look at this is, is you know. At, um, what do we do to protect the the actual innocent person who who um, at some point gets new evidence of innocence? How do we litigate that claim? How do we make sure that that person gets that their full day in court? And that's what this uh, opinion um, drives at is uh, protecting the innocent, uh, making sure that the, the 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 criminal justice system is actually seeking justice here, not just convictions. And the prosecutor has that same interest. Whether or not they, they want to say it or not, they have an interest to see that justice is done or a duty, not just to, to get convictions and win cases. So that was a balance that they struck here. And when you said you know earlier about the Supreme Court taking up a case, they took this one up, and I think they wanted to provide some guidance here because there were some old cases that they were relying on, the, the, the different appellate courts in the state. Um, and uh, as it, they pointed out in this case, they're relying on dicta at the at, in the previous decisions, mm-hmm. which just essentially means that it wasn't uh, essential to the outcome of a case. 
It was never briefed to the the, the courts before, and so it, it's not a, a it doesn't have the full uh, standing as something that it was a, a, a true. Uh, um, holding on the merits of a case that was directly on point and had been briefed by the the parties in the case and litigated fully. So dicta, you know, they 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 described the, the prior uh, opinions as dicta and decided to decline to follow that and they established a solid standard here. And, and that's I really want to follow up on that. We're talking to James Dore of Laval Law today, a defense attorney, and I've mentioned many times uh, visit LavalLaw.com to find out about Jim's work and. Um, really want to focus on what we're talking about today because if I understand uh, what happened here and and you've mentioned many times um, uh, the process uh, the judicial process so I think the Supreme Court Illinois Supreme Court said um, you know we cannot deprive some of you know life or liberty giving given compelling evidence of innocence so the standard should now be set that yes someone who has pled guilty can claim innocence but in this particular case Reed didn't actually provide any evidence of being innocent, so they didn't side with him in terms of supporting his individual claim. Is that the right way to look at it? Right. He didn't ultimately get what he wanted as relief, which would have been a new trial or the you know, possibly mm-hmm. release of prison. So, yeah, they, 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 they did not find his claim to be persuasive, but they still uh, wanted to protect the right to raise a claim of actual innocence. And it was a good, powerful quote in the decision. It said, this court refuses to turn a blind eye to the manifest injustice and failure of our criminal justice system that would result from a continued incarceration of a demonstrably innocent person, even where a defendant pleads guilty. So, demonstrably innocent person, they, that's a, a key phrase there, that you have to raise uh, an actual innocence claim that is uh, um, verifiable or credible. It's not just some... You know, I decided to change my mind, and I, I want to, sure. you know, withdraw my, you know. So they, it's not reversible at defendants' whim. They point out it, it should only be um, the, the the leave to withdraw the guilty plea has to be. Um, it requires a, a a showing that there's a manifest injustice. And I'm going to kind of box you into a corner here because we've got a few minutes left. But a couple of really big things I want to talk about. And the first is, the court also said that. Um, you know, if there's a trial, there's the burden of on the prosecution to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt. We've, you've, you and I have discussed that on the podcast many times. But if there's a plea deal, there's really less burden in that regard. And was that part of what the court looked at in, in terms of evaluating cases like this going forward then? There is less of a burden because you're really just putting facts before the court so the court knows that in, in conjunction with the, the defendant pleading guilty that there's facts to support that guilty plea. And essentially, you're, you're, the defendant would be stipulating, like, yes, those facts are true, and that's why I'm pleading guilty. So the, it's a factual basis for the plea um, that, that would be uh, as part of the record. And I was really intrigued, again, going back to conversations we've had, um, the court sort of rejected an argument the state was trying to make in this claim, and the state said, well, look, if, if people can come back and uh, claim innocent after we've done a plea deal, we're just going to do less plea deals because it doesn't you know, warrant our time to do that. And this, the court said that's, that's not the case. And um, what, what did you have to say about or what do you think about um, their claim in that regard? Well, they they did point out that you have a duty to ensure justice is done too. So you're not you're not mm-hmm. just uh, on one side of this issue. You, you, the prosecutor does have a a higher standard as well. 
Um, but the prosecutors do have a good point in that when there is a guilty plea, they don't necessarily put on all the evidence they have that they would at a trial. So they're just doing this is enough so the, justice, so the judge can see there's a basis for the plea. We have facts that we could prove. But they don't put in all the evidence. So they're saying, eh, if this is allowed, we may lose some of our advantage we would have at a trial. But ultimately, I think that claim that they're worried about, um, you know, the, the continued plea bargaining, that they're at a disadvantage and, you know, this will lead to fewer plea bargains, I think I, I don't think there's much to that claim. Um, prosecutors are still as busy as they would be. Um, you know, if anything, they have to be more aware of an actual claim of innocence out there, which they should be concerned about anyway. So I don't see it leading to less less uh, plea bargaining, um, but it, it it does provide something for, you know, like I said, that that they want to protect the actually innocent. So that mm-hmm. has that is a yep. bigger concern than what benefit either side gets from a plea bargain. And, and uh, you'd mentioned that the you know the court used this um, case to to sort of establish some guidelines going forward. Um, what if if anything does a finding like this do to influence defense attorneys like you um, in handling other cases or handling pleas? Does it give you uh, guidance in any way? Well, I, I tell you, if there's if there's some kind of actual claim out there of innocence, if you have you know somebody else had you know say would have been guilty of the offense and not your client. You're going to be screening for that. You're going to want to you want you want to flesh those issues out with your client before you even start approaching um, plea bargaining because you want to know how strong your case is, or more importantly, how strong the prosecutor's case is. So, mm-hmm. you know, as we talked about before, the, the defense attorney is always going to look at the evidence and try to weigh all those factors and ballpark. All right, what what what's you know what am I looking at trial? Do do we have a triable case? What, you know, how strong of a case do we have? You know, claims of actual innocence. If I have somebody that, that before trial that, that would claim, say, ownership of drugs, I'm going to try to to work with that if I can. But that's again, there's another can of worms there because that person conceivably is protected by a, a, an attorney who doesn't want that client to say I'm guilty of this or admit to something. It makes that case worse. So there's competing interests here, um, and I think ultimately. When the, when the justices looked at the fact that you know both of these guys are in prison together, it was just a little too convenient to have it set up this way, right? But you know, it, say the scenario where somebody's not in custody and somebody's in custody for a crime they didn't commit, you know, that that would be powerful evidence that somebody would step forward sure. and say, "I'm willing to face this prosecution because I was in fact guilty, not this other man." So that that it, they left the, the the door open to make sure that those kind of things can be litigated. Well, many thanks to James Dorr for joining us. 847-705-7555 is where you can reach him, uh, lavellelaw.com, and uh, we'll continue to scour and look for headlines that uh, make for good conversation. And We uh, appreciate James' time, appreciate all of you listening, and we'll look forward to our next episode soon.